Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Victorious. This series explores the victory that is offered to all those who believe in Christ. Christ's victory on the cross gives us the ability to be victorious in the face of our guilt, our temptation, our fear, and even in the face of our enemy. We are currently live streaming our services online each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 o'clock a.m. To learn more on how to tune in each week or listen to previous sermons, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc forward slash watch. We hope to see you online. As each day goes by in this pandemic, we're seeing a growing movement of selflessness and thankfulness. You know, we've seen large donations of money and items coming from people who are really well-to-do and are being really generous and and large corporations that are transitioning to make personal protective equipment. And it's these selfless acts and the thankfulness of those people and regular people that are inspiring. I was so surprised recently to read a story about a Minnesota state trooper who was just doing his job and he pulled over a driver who was speeding and he discovered that the driver was a doctor. And so he went back to his car and instead of writing a ticket, he took out uh, all of his state-issued N95 mask and he gave it to the doctor with a warning. Then I heard a bunch of, about a bunch of college students who began to fill in at a Meals on Wheels program because the people who normally serve the meals were in that at-risk age. And so these college students began to do that. And then we've seen all of the little kids and people who have made thank you signs for the, for the first responders and for the, the people that are helping with medical issues and, and our people that are on staff in hospitals. And we've seen people putting out the needs for the homeless in the Hartford area and people responding. And we've seen all kinds of acts of selflessness as people are checking in on their neighbors and caring for one another in ways that they might not have done just five weeks ago. It's very encouraging to see this selflessness and this thankfulness. Now, I'm excited about this because isn't that how God wants us to live as his followers? And I hope that Christians are leading the way in these efforts, and I hope that Christians will continue to do so. But listen, you know, I know it isn't easy because all of us have this downward pull toward being self-centered, egocentric, and self-indulgent. In 2001, country music star Toby Keith released a song called I Want to Talk About Me. And it was about a song about his girlfriend who was very self-absorbed, so self-absorbed that all she ever wanted to talk about was herself. And the first part of the song goes this, about this way. We talk about your work and how your boss is a jerk. We talk about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about your troubles you've been having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the dimples on your chin, the polish on your toes and the run in your hose. And God knows we're going to talk about your clothes. You know, talking about me, about you makes me smile, but every once in a while, I want to talk about me. You know, that song illustrates the downward pull of our human hearts and our human minds to focus on us, to to really be only interested in ourselves. And this is an issue as old as humanity. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest leaders in the early church, 
wrote about himself this way. He said, I know that all of God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself after all. I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, then I act another. Doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I don't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. So if we want to be the hands and feet of Christ right now during this pandemic, and after this pandemic has begun to calm down, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to be victorious over our own self-centeredness? Where will we find the power to do that? Well, we find that power through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us the victory over sin and death and has given us the victory to be able to live in a God-honoring way. We find that answer to that power that Jesus gives us by following him and by learning and living out his teaching in our lives. So let's look at what he taught. The first thing that I want us to look at is this. To be victorious over our self-centeredness, we must love God supremely. Now, look, if you're a jazz enthusiast, you know who John Coltrane is. Uh, he's not as well-known as Miles Davis, but Coltrane is known for having the most popular jazz album of the last 65 years. The name of the album is called A Love Supreme, and one writer reports that the sales of that album mirror what we've come to expect from a pop hit in 2020. It quickly sold over 100,000 copies when it was first released, and now over these 65 years, it's sold well over a million. Now, to know about Coltrane is to know he actually once played in the Miles Davis band, but Miles Davis fired him because he showed up at the bandstand drunk and disheveled. So at that point in his life, Coltrane was an addict. And his life was spiraling out of control. And one jazz historian wrote that if his, if his career had ended there, he'd be remembered now as a musician who flamed out just as he was discovering his voice. But that's not what happened. Everything changed for Coltrane in 1957 when, as he wrote in the liner note to that defining album, A Love Supreme, these words. He said, he experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which led him to a richer, fuller, more productive life. 
During that year, Coltrane stopped drinking. He kicked his heroin habit. And from that point forward, his career would unfold with an almost frightening amount of focus and intensity. The song... It's really more of a production. The song, A Love Supreme, was recorded in 1965, and it features his tenor sax along with three other musicians. There are no lyrics in the song, but the song is composed of four parts, and it has a unique part in that last section of the song. Now, Coltrane titled each one of those sections, and the last one he entitled Psalm. So the fourth movement of A Love Supreme is, in fact, a musical setting for an original poem to God written by John Coltrane and printed in the album liner's notes. Coltrane plays almost exactly one note for each syllable of the poem and bases his phrasing on the words in the poem. Now, if you're wondering what it's titled, the poem is the same title as the song. A love supreme. And in that poem, John Coltrane expresses his love to God and his gratitude for God that all he has done for him and how he has redeemed his life and shown him so much love. He calls the way that God loves him and all of us a love supreme. And in turn, Coltrane, this jazz master, seeks to show his love in a supreme way to God. His recording and his poem were his offering of love to God, who he knew had loved him supremely. If you go to the dictionary and you look up the word supreme, you discover that it means to be superior to all others. And so for us to love God supremely would mean to love God above all other people and all other, th other things. And indeed, that's what Jesus teaches his followers to do. In the Gospel of Luke, one day he was approached by a man, an expert in the law, and he wanted to test Jesus. So he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, is to use all of your abilities to demonstrate your love to God. Jesus taught this over and over to his disciples and to everyone who would listen to him. And loving people with all that we are means we use all of our emotional capacity all of our spiritual capacity, all of our physical capacity, and all of our mental capacity to focus on loving God with all that we are and with everything that we have. That's a supreme kind of love. The disciple John, who walked with Jesus and wrote several parts of the New Testament, gives a clear explanation of what loving God in this supreme way would look like. He writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So loving God above this world and above all things in this world is what John is telling us that loving God with all that we are looks like. Now, when Jesus taught about this, he made things very clear that we're supposed to live in this world, but not to be a part of the world's way or the world's philosophy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that we're not supposed to conform to the world's behavior or to the world's customs. So loving God with all that we are above the rest of the world actually means we're going to conform to God's will and to God's way. Loving God with all that we are is what we're called to do. When we do that, we will have victory over our self-centered and egocentric and self-indulgent ways. Now, you may have noticed that Jesus affirmed what this man said because Jesus taught that loving God with all that you are is the greatest commandment. When Jesus taught this, he said there was also a second command which was like it, and that was to love your neighbor as yourself. So why does Jesus include that? Because of this. You can't really love God with all that you are if you're not willing to love the people that he's created also. We are called to love God, and that means we're called to love all people too. Jesus made it clear when he said, love people as much as you love yourself. And just to show how important this love is, Jesus said, listen, when you keep these two commandments, you'll keep the entire law of the Old Testament. And you'll keep all of the teaching of the Old Testament prophets because these two commandments are based on that. In other words, if you love God with all that you are and love people like you want to be loved, you'll be keeping all of God's commands. Jesus teaches us that if we don't want to be self-centered, if we don't want to have the focus on us all the time, then we need to start by giving God all of our love and loving him supremely. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells his followers something that's really hard. To be victorious over self, he teaches them that they must die to themselves. Now, the need for quarantine today to contain the spread of the coronavirus has reminded historians of a certain small village named Eam in 17th century England. I was reading about this this week, and and it was talking about the Black Plague. The, The Black Plague was all over Europe and Great Britain from the 1300s through the 1600s, and it killed millions of people. But Something happened specifically in September of 1665. Uh, A tailor's assistant went to London and and brought a bunch of blankets back from London. Unknowingly, they were infested with fleas, fleas that were carrying the plague. So soon, many of the 800 residents of this small town were perishing from the disease, and and the, the leaders of this small town decided that the only way they could deal with this was to quarantine the village to contain the disease. 
They felt like this was extremely important because this small village laid on, a, on an important trade route between two prominent cities. And if the plague that was in this small village were to get out, it would cause many, many more people to die. And so these leaders persuaded the villagers to voluntarily self-quarantine. According to eyewitness accounts, a quarantine cordon was established with a one-mile radius marked by a ring of stones. And for 14 months, nobody went in or out of the village. Food was left at the boundary stone by nearby townspeople in exchange for money that was submerged in vinegar because they believed that would disinfect the money. The death rate in this small town skyrocketed. One woman, Elizabeth Hancock, buried six of her children and her husband all in one month. To limit infections within this small village, church services were held outdoors. In fact, some people actually moved to living outdoors. By the end of the plague, 260 of the 800 residents died. But that was more than double the mortality rate of the plague in London. The villagers self-sacrifice had worked. The plague never spread to the nearby towns. And 14 months later, in November of 1667, the quarantine was lifted. As survivors' descendants wrote in the history of this village in the succeeding generations, they said, we should admire our ancestors. But for their unparalleled resolution to give up their lives, even to be doomed by the pestilential death that they would submit themselves to to save the surrounding country. Now, that bit of history uh, comes a little close to home, doesn't it? I mean, have you considered how serious this time is in our history? Have you considered that the social distancing and quarantining that we've been asked to submit to and be a part of is an act of selflessness and sacrifice that falls in line with what Jesus calls us all to do? Jesus told his disciples then, and he tells his disciples today these words. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So what does it mean for us to deny ourselves? Well, certainly it means to give up things and to go without, but for Christians, it's about following Jesus, the one who gave up everything to save all of us. It's also about giving up our will to accept God's will for our lives. Elizabeth and Jim Elliot understood what it meant to deny oneself and to take up their cross and follow Jesus. In the fall of 1949, a new passion to reach people for Christ began to spread across the United States, and evangelists like Billy Graham started leading large gatherings to share the gospel and saw thousands of people put their faith in Jesus. That same fall, 
a young graduate of Wheaton College, wrote in his journal these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That young man was Jim Elliott. And less than a year later, Jim sensed God calling him to reach people for Christ. Now, while he was at Wheaton, Jim had met Elizabeth Howard, who knew she was called by God to be a missionary and a translator of the New Testament. And they sensed God's call to go to the mission field in Ecuador. And so they went there. They were married in 1953, and they connected with a group of other missionaries to begin to share the gospel with an unreached people group in the Amazon rainforest. They moved to a missionary station in the jungle, and they began to make contact with the Hurani people. In January of 1957, after a few months of airdropping packages and sending messages, Jim and four other men decided they would go and, and visit the Hurani village in person. So they went. After days with no word being received for them, people began to wonder what had happened to these missionaries, and so they began to search for them. And eventually they discovered their bodies and realized that all five of them had been killed speared to death there in the Amazon jungle. Now, back here in the United States, Life magazine ran an article to chronicle the sacrifice of these missionaries, and people were startled and wondered at the seemingly senseless sacrifice of these young men so far from home. But these missionaries knew that it wasn't senseless, and especially Elizabeth Elliot. That same year, Elizabeth wrote... Uh, the book Through Gates of Splendor, where she, along with the other families, explained why their loved ones had made the greatest sacrifice to share the good news of Jesus with the Hurani people. And in the book, she quotes what Jim had written in his journal so long ago. Remember what it said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. Elizabeth clearly presented the idea that these men had not made a senseless sacrifice, but they had given their best so others would know the saving knowledge of Jesus. Just a year later, Elizabeth and a friend who was a sister of one of the missionaries who was slain went back and made contact with the very tribe that had killed her husband. And shortly after that, she went and served among the Hurani people for two years as a missionary, seeing many of them come to faith in Jesus. Jim and Elizabeth understood what it meant to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. And that's what he calls all of us to do. Now listen, God may or may not be calling you to a life of service as a missionary, but God calls every follower of Jesus to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. And he wants all of us to know that feeding our egos and our self-interest here on earth is short-sighted, and it's foolish. That's why he says in this passage, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There is more to life 
than what we will experience here on this earth. We want to live for God now, but we also want to live with God in eternity. To drive home his point, Jesus went on and he said, listen, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, I'll be ashamed of you when I come again. Jesus teaches us that we don't want to be self-centered, that we don't want everything in this world to be about us, that we have a God who loves us and has a greater way for us to live in his power and in his love. And so he calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. Remember a while ago I talked about the Apostle Peter who shared how he wrestled with doing the right thing and when he tried to do the right thing he ended up doing the wrong thing? In another one of his letters to another church he shows that for us to be victorious over ourself we have to embrace the attitude of Jesus Christ. Writing to a church in Asia Minor He tells them that they are to live like Jesus, saying this, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he were God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. We're supposed to have the same attitude that Jesus had. To be willing to be a servant, a slave for Jesus. To be willing to serve others in his name with his love. Cheryl Batchelder understands this as a follower of jesus she took this attitude that the attitude of following jesus and being like him into her work life when she became the ceo of popeye's louisiana kitchen she turned her company around by focusing on serving others in an interview she shared these thoughts about servanthood the bible verse that's on my desk is philippians 2 3 because I haven't found one that's more paramount to how I want to lead in my family and in my work. And this is what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. She says, I really like the choice of words around counting others more significant than yourselves. I believe we're all born with an inner two-year-old in each one of us and we'd really like to be laying on the floor kicking and screaming because we didn't get the candy that we wanted it's pretty much hardwired in us we're self-absorbed little people and we learn to fake it well but we're still pretty much a two-year-old on the inside and she goes on she says i find that biblical perspective really challenging in every aspect of my life to serve others how am i spending my time the decisions that I make. To put them through a filter, I do this. I think about myself and whether I'm thinking about others. Am I doing this because I'm going to get a bigger bonus or am I really thinking about the long-term interest of this company? Am I truly doing this for my franchise owners or am I getting some personal benefit that I haven't been willing to acknowledge? Those kind of provocative 
self-mirror questions hold me to a higher standard. And if you ask them, they'll hold you to a higher standard. You know, Scripture tells us that we're supposed to have the, the attitude of Christ who himself didn't count equality with God something to be grasped and to be held on to. But instead, he made himself a slave for God. A slave who would ultimately go to the cross and sacrifice his life to pay for the sins of the world, offering salvation and eternity to anyone who would believe in him and follow him. You know, we began this series of messages on Easter, the day that we celebrate that through the resurrection, Jesus defeated the power of sin and death for the entire world. He did that because he loves us. And he offers that same power to us to, that he can defeat the power of sin and the power of death in our lives. And the, he can defeat so much more. He can actually defeat the power that our self-absorbed, egocentric nature has in our lives. If we're going to let him do that, we have to let him give us that power and we have to be willing to follow the example that he had and live our lives following him every day. To do that, we need to love God with everything that we are. All of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. We need to die to our self-interest and our self-absorption. And we need to embrace the attitude of Christ who thought more of others than he thought of himself. That's what followers of Jesus Christ do with the power of Jesus working in their lives each and every day. We don't do it perfectly, but we seek to love God, deny ourselves, and have the attitude of Christ. That's our calling. I want to encourage you as followers of Christ during this time and beyond to make that your focus Will you love God with all you are? Will you deny yourself and will you have the attitude of Christ in every area of your life? That's what he calls us to do. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, you've got an inside look of what it looks like to be a Christian. And maybe you've decided you want to follow Jesus after hearing this day. If so, I want to encourage you to follow him because being a follower of Jesus means the world to all of us. It's the most important decision that you can ever make. Now, being a follower of Jesus also means that you're going to have a relationship with God, and so I want to encourage you to, to talk to God about this decision that you, you've made, and so I want to encourage you to pray a prayer. I, I'm going to give you some words to pray, and you can pray those phrases, or you can put it in your own words. I'm going to invite you right now, wherever you are, to close your eyes and bow your head and pray these words back to Jesus. You can just pray them silently. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And now today, I commit my life to following him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you prayed that prayer, I want you to know that I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you for taking that step to say you believe in Jesus and that you want to follow him. Now, maybe some of you are still wondering about that prayer, wondering uh, if you should pray that prayer. You know what? That's okay. The team's going to help us close with a song that reminds us of how much we need Jesus and how important his power is in our life. And as you listen to the words, and maybe as you sing along, if you want to pray a prayer and tell Jesus you believe in him and that you accept his forgiveness for your sins and that you want to follow him for the rest of your life, go ahead and do that. There's no better time than now to do it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.